0: From Flourish DX, this is the Psych, Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada.
1: Welcome to Psych, Health and Safety in Canada podcast. And today is a very special day because for the first time in my career, I am actually interviewing a Jedi warrior. I'd like to welcome Rosie Young and get her to tell you how
2: she became a Jedi warrior. Thank you, Marianne. And I hope to live up to that title, but I think it bears a lot of explanations. So <laughs> uh, let me dive into what's behind that. Um, first of all, yes, I do call myself a Jedi warrior. And what's also very important to me, it comes before being a Jedi warrior, is that I am a daughter, I am a loyal friend, I am a loving auntie to my friends' many kids, uh, and I'm also a changer of lenses, bringer of justice, and wielder of the word. So I have many other descriptions about myself, and this is something that I went through trying to understand what who am I really, not what I do. Uh, Which, of course, is very important when we're talking about psychological safety and how we work. And so because I believe so strongly in um, helping people who are hurting, uplifting communities that are overlooked and marginalized, I do this through my work as a mindset liberation coach and Jedi warrior. And Jedi Warrior is also exactly what it sounds if you are a fan of Star Wars, as I am. So I would love to be a Jedi, like a Star Wars Jedi. Uh, actually, Jedi is really my acronym for justice, equity, decolonization, and inclusion. And I include warrior in there specifically because it is a battle. It's, it's a war. It's a fight, right? It's, it's many things. It is. I also believe love and empathy. These are, these are weapons, you could say, perhaps, of fighting the fight. Um, But it is a battle because there is a lot of opposition, there's a lot of adversity, um, and it is also a lot of uphill change. So that's kind of where my title that I've given myself comes from.
1: Well, I'm personally glad that you are a justice, equity, um, decolonization, and inclusion warrior rather than just battling You know, out there in the stars. So, for me, I'm happy. I'm happy that you are who you are. And uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today, Rosie?
2: It. I wonder that myself, to be honest, to Marianne. And it actually, the good thing about it is, I think it opens up possibilities for anyone that no matter where you've come from, your your past doesn't define your future. Um, and the future is wide open with possibilities. So I am what I would say I'm an accountant turned activist. So my first 20 years of my career was spent in various corporate roles. Uh, I am a chartered public accountant. I am also a certified human resources leader. So I've done the executive positions in a variety of companies across Canada. Um, And some of them were for-profit, some of them were not-for-profit, because that was my way of trying to use accounting and HR and operations to do the work, to help hurting people. I didn't know how else to do it, except using trying to use my accounting and HR skills. So my turning point was a couple years ago, right before the pandemic hit, when the company I was with at the time decided to restructure. And it was the fork in the road that allowed me to say am I going to keep trying to make accounting and HR and operations fit what I really care about to do in this world? Or am I just going to try and do what I care about in this world? And so that has been this windy, twisty, up and down road, terrifying, exciting, uh, just all the emotions um, that has led me to this point where I can, I guess, stand in front of you here or be on this podcast to say, this is what I think I am. And I'm, I'm, not ashamed to call myself this anymore. I'm I'm a mindset liberation coach because my own mind has been liberated by the journey and the healing I've been on. Um and because I've been healing, I can now be a Jedi warrior.
1: Do you know I really wish that kind of turmoil for everybody that you're forced to make a decision. You're, that fork in the road wasn't your idea. It was just there. But the idea that somebody can turn their life from trying to fit into somebody else's idea of what they should do to say, no, I'm going to be who I really am is uh, amazing, just beautiful. Um, Maybe we'll start with some of your advice to organizations. And one of the things that you said, Rosie, that really resonated uh, with me is you can't train your way um, into inclusion. And I so much agree with that, but we know we have people that are listening, that are in charge of organizations and uh, many people who want to do the right thing, but they're not sure what that is. What's your advice?
2: Mm. So uh, I'm going to caution anyone who's listening right now, especially if you come from a, a corporate career, just as I did, that, and especially if you're in HR, just as I was, that some of the things I'm going to say uh, with strength and, and with safety, but not softness, is it may cause you some discomfort because it causes us to take a good hard look inside our organizations and what things are and what things are not. And trust me, I had to go through that journey myself and things that I thought well, sure, Like I believe in treating people well. I don't think I'm a racist. I don't think I'm discriminating. I'm a woman. I don't think I discriminate against other women. Um, and yet when we see how many mindsets, it's really about the mindset and the attitudes that don't just come from a workplace. It is taught to us from infanthood. It is taught by our families, our cultures, uh, our schools, all the, and all these things that are geared towards how you will be in the workplace. And so the danger of it and why I don't think we can train ourselves out of things is it's not uh, it's not academic. Uh, it is behavior. It is ideas about situations and people and also what performance looks like. Like what is good business? What is a good business practice? These ideas get internalized and then we don't think that something is actually hurting anybody or is inequitable. We just think but this is how business works or this is how companies and work works. So I'm not doing anything wrong. Um, therefore, how could this be unfair? And I know this is a bit extract. So um, we can, we can, there's lots of examples that we can go into. Let's um, do that. Yeah. I think it's helpful if people can kind of, uh, can kind of see where things are coming from. So I think first I want to, I want to bring up a little bit of science Um because I think that just helps us understand why when we see the outcome, why it shouldn't be surprising that way, right? So for example, uh, a book that I highly recommend for listeners to pick up, it's called Scarcity. Uh, it's S-C-A-R-C-I-T-Y. And it's by a couple of researchers and professors who are racialized men. Uh, one, of the, one of the authors is Sandeel Malanathan. Um, And he is highly respected in the field of economics. And he partners, actually, with a psychologist professor, um, Dr. Elder Shafir. So the interesting combination, like this intersection of psychology and economics, uh, shows us many things. But one of the areas of their research actually talks about what happens in our brains. What's the impact when we experience severe scarcity? Um, Their focus is on poverty, but they research many different areas. So here's a non-business example, just to help us understand. So non-business example would be dieting and food, right? And this could be dieting for health or dieting to to lose weight. But when they researched a a number of people and they put them through an ethical experiment, uh, but basically where they were a little bit hungry uh, or maybe a lot hungry, not to the point of dangerous, but just hungry, and then they flashed some words across the screen. So the test was basically word recognition and memory. What they noted was the people that were in the hungry side of the experiment noticed the food-related words like cake, ice cream, bread, noticed them a lot more than the non-hungry people. And uh, they remembered them. They had a bigger memory of it than the non-hungry people. So what it created essentially was a bit of a tunnel vision in our brains to really hone in and focus on the things that people felt scarce in. This, they found applied across many things that this is about food, but it applies in any situation of scarcity. Of course, money uh, would be the same thing. If somebody was poor, then they would notice money-related words more, et cetera. How this applies to real life, and I know I'm I'm skipping a bunch of things in between, but it is actually very much linked. How this applies in real life in the workplace, um, for example, would be if we are time scarce, which we always are, right? Because there's never enough time in the day to do it all then same thing happens where we just tunnel vision. Now, the kind of a good thing about it is, because I I admit I'm a procrastinator, Uh, you know how when you're like, oh, that project that's due three weeks from now. Well, uh, I don't have time to do it. That's not the highest priority because this other thing that was due three weeks ago at some point is now due tomorrow. And we're constantly just trying to do the thing that we need to do tomorrow. But meanwhile, that thing that is due three weeks later, which is actually very important, but is not the most urgent. It gets delayed and delayed and delayed. And it actually um, takes away our brain's capacity to focus on anything else because all we can think about is the pressure that we face immediately. And that shows up in a million different ways, right? Like the when you expect somebody to be more strategic in their thinking or you want someone to also manage a team and also do these extra uh, extra volunteer-ish or extracurricular volunteers on committees or whatnot on top of the regular day job. But at the same time, the pressure that the company and employers putting on them creates the scarcity. Honestly, it's a false scarcity, right? Because it's the company's own deadlines. Creates the scarcity, then you're actually hindering your employees' capability of uh, creative thinking, of problem solving, of doing a million different things that do not relate to the immediate problem. And there's a million other ways to apply the same principles about scarcity around racial scarcity, as in if I don't feel I have uh, enough racial, like enough safety around my race or enough safety around my gender. Uh, there's a bunch of implications of that as well that apply, but I'll I'll pause there for now because I know it's a lot.
1: No, it's great. I mean, the idea that um, when we're under pressure, we narrow our focus, in which case we're not going to be Um, able to critically think and, and interact well, is well known. But what I'd like you to do, Rosie, is speak about it more specifically, when it comes to um, what you've seen around discrimination in the workplace.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, excuse me, it's a really good question. And kind of hard to identify, because it seems so innocuous. Okay, here, here's a What is commonly called microaggressions, um, which is to me, it's a misnomer because it implies that something doesn't matter too much, Uh, but in that same vein of scarcity. So if we are super focused on the thing that we don't have, ultimately, that's what the impact of scarcity is, right? We get super focused on what we lack. Let's say uh, in the case of a woman at work, and not just in that particular company, but her whole life has received messages of oh, this is what a woman's role is, or well, as a woman, you're capable of this, but not necessarily that, or this is what a proper woman is expected to do. And so feeling the lack of uh, confidence in herself or feeling a lack of, I have to create opportunities, no one's just going to give me an opportunity because they don't offer, they just don't see me that way. Then they're always focused, tunnel visioned on the way people are treating them as a woman versus as just a whole person. And so sometimes I find that, uh, well, in this example would be men, right? So it would be men saying, oh, you know what, that person, that woman is so sensitive, like, oh, you don't, you can't even shake a woman's hand these days. Like, how do I know if I've gone too far? And then put all the blame essentially, or the responsibility on the woman to make the man comfortable, right? And to be like, well, I feel like my, the man would be like, oh, my hands are tied. I can't say anything because these women are so sensitive or that black man is so sensitive. When this false idea of them being too sensitive, first of all, I don't think they are too sensitive. Like probably that the man had said something uh, that was uh, not appropriate. But let's just say a other person who wasn't in scarcity, right? Who wasn't feeling uh, marginalized about their gender identity their whole life or their racial identity their whole life they might actually not be as, they might not notice the phrasing. They might not notice the words that the man used as much because they're not as tunnel visioned on it. it, it they note, they, they hear it, but it doesn't stand out to them as much because of the fact that they haven't been as harmed by it, frankly, their whole life, right? So it's, it's not trying to excuse or create justifications either way. Um, I genuinely feel that if a woman feels that, You know, the man shouldn't have uh, said something. She has every right to feel that. And on the man's side, he doesn't need to feel attacked every time a woman uh, refers to something he said as not appropriate or we shouldn't. That's not a fair thing to say. That's not a nice thing to say about women. It's about reaching an understanding. But if both sides are in scarcity... Um, then all they can see is how they are being attacked or notice again, that thing that keeps happening over and over. And I think that understanding these impacts, understanding how our brain processes this information is one step in empathy and appreciating what the perspective of the other person is.
1: Yeah, that's a, a great explanation of um, how something that can be heard by one person feels um, threatening or dismissive, and by another person, it, that has no effect at all. And I think for those who have had privilege and entitlement, they just assume that if people like them don't react, then therefore, nobody should. And uh, how do we help Rosie, these people who have been the mainstream, who have had it their way all their lives? I, because I do feel some um, compassion, I guess, that if you're raised a certain way and that's been acceptable and not just acceptable, but um rewarded the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you got into the corporate world and got promoted and you've been uh, had accolades for it. And now people are having to learn it's no longer acceptable. How do we help those folks?
2: Hmm. Well, I think that's also where the, we can't train our way into a more equitable workplace comes in because the answer to me is not unconscious, not more unconscious bias training. It has its place, right? Um, All these tools in the toolbox are helpful. Um, But in a way, I think the answer is the same for how do we help people who have been historically oppressed and and discriminated against? And how do we help people who are blind to their own privilege uh, and blind to the ways that they don't even realize they are through no fault or desire of their own placed in a higher tier, essentially the social strata of things. Um, And that, that answer, it's not really one answer, but that the holistic solution is for each person to understand themselves better, become more self-aware uh, of what how what some of the scarcity principles are, like what how they're personally affected. And also what I call saboteurs or self-sabotaging behavior comes up. So one of the many things that I don't think is being trained and yet and is also not really acceptable in the Western workplace are feelings right? Like feelings of many things that get siloed and pushed out the door it is your personal life, like what happens with your, your kids are, you know, we're flexible, but your kids are not our problem. Um, you'll have to figure that out on your own. And also your feelings. So traditionally, feelings and your emotional reaction to things are, are not professional. Professional implies objective. Uh, it implies nothing phases you right? Like the people are praised for how calm they seem, whereas emotions and emotionality seems chaotic and uncontrollable. And nobody likes that. Nobody likes the uncontrolled and, and things that can't be handled. And yet the very rea- the reality is in everything, including in equity and inclusion work, emotions are very much at the heart. And emotions are also rooted in, in fear. So my question to uh, some of the people that I coach and into organizations when I'm talking about equity issues is what are you afraid of? Because that, that fear is often rooted in fear of loss, fear of shame, uh, fear of what it will cost them, which is related to loss. But, and I don't just mean monetarily, some of it is salary, but loss of power, loss of status, uh, loss of face, which is also related to shame. And, and making that okay, making it okay to talk about it, uh, helping people to, when we do executive coaching, again, people in privilege, they will get the executive coaches, which cost a lot of money. Um, and other people, even though the organization might say, we want to see more Black leaders, Indigenous leaders, women leaders um, in higher positions, they don't often get the expensive investment of, say, a personal coach or an executive coach. And yet, this is an area where I uh I really believe it will help because no one's going to be safe talking in a group, which is also where training occurs. The CEO is not going to be in a group with all his direct reports. And I say most of the CEOs are men. So you will not be in a group with all his other direct reports saying, yeah, as a white man, I recognize now my own places. And maybe that was a little bit sexist. Maybe that was a little bit racist. First off, the the company would be on the hook for liability, right? Which is also where HR is not the same as equity. So how we help is, I think, making starting by making it okay to have feelings and then giving them tools, which can include some training as well as one-on-one support to understand their their baggage, what they come to the table with, their self-sabotaging feelings and behavior that causes them to resist in areas where then it becomes anti-equity and um, anti-inclusion.
1: Yeah. It's... It is a tough, um, area for people who all their lives have pushed emotion down, haven't dealt with it. It's what we know now is that if you can process an emotion, you can move forward from it. When you shove it down, um, it often stays with you. And, um, we, we don't want work to become group therapy. Um, It's not appropriate. But to have people now, I I, this is what I hear all the time, Rosie, is you should bring your whole self to work. And I say, what if my whole self is a cranky, miserable person? Like, we need to have the ability to go to work, um, do a good job and leave at the end of the day and not feel overwhelmed with everybody else's emotions. So Mm -hmm. how do you balance that? How do you make it um, so that it is psychologically safe.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I, I'm picking up on what you said earlier, um, and this is not to put you on the spot, but uh, when you said, we don't want to make workplaces group therapy, and that's not appropriate. Can right. you tell me more about what you mean by that?
1: When, If we're trauma-informed, if we understand that people go through things in their life that are very difficult, mm-hmm. we're in the workplace we are not qualified um and it's not uh, in somebody's best interest for us to open all that up in addition we're in a power relationship with our employees and even if i was a psychologist if you worked for me then i should not be treating you or discussing your issues because there's strings attached and so we really want a psychologically safe workplace where people are treated well, where we're aware of potential sensitivities, where we are always inclusive, but to um, turn it into group therapy sessions at work, I, I feel it's inappropriate and unethical. I
2: mm-hmm. uh, Thank you for explaining that. And I totally agree with you. Um, It is a... F- it is it's it's sometimes a fine line between wanting to be a supportive boss um, and getting too personal with individuals or getting into territory where, Unintentionally, it's like you're drawn into almost a a therapy or counseling session. Um, And even for me, I'm a positive intelligence coach, and I very much see my coaching as part of the healing process. But I am not a psychotherapist. I'm not a psychologist, and so there are definitely waters that I should not be treading in either. So I think that's a really great point you raise about boundaries. To be honest, Um, where I, I guess not not to say people should become therapists at work, but I think there is a place for our workplaces to recognize that people need healing and they can't just stop their they can't keep their pain outside of the workplace, right? So no, you know, managers, CEOs, etc., they are not trained to provide that. But we can all learn to become aware uh, because we all come with our pain. We all come with unhealed, uh, really traumas, like traumas of different kinds, right? And that all affects how we interact with each other. And that's partly why I can why I said earlier about we need to bring feelings as a more normalized thing to discuss in the workplace. Um, maybe maybe an example, uh, because I've been thinking a lot about what makes a, a workplace psychologically safe. And it's actually, I think, a little bit easier to understand when we look at what makes it unsafe, and then think about how we counter those things. Because psychologically safe, first of all, it's different for everyone, right? Because everyone's psychology is different. And that's one of the problems with our typical corporate workplaces today is, the the way we work is we we expect everyone to behave the same. So we treat everybody the same because we think that's a quality and that's good. And then we also expect not everyone obviously has different jobs, but our expectations of people and how they perform is essentially the same. So what we're ignoring then is all the life experiences, the unhealed, unrecognized, whether it's it's trauma or just some experiences or maybe it is intergenerational historical racism or sexism or all these things, we completely ignore that and still expect people to behave and perform the same way. And yet, kind of like in the scarcity example, we know that's not possible depending on what the background is. And it doesn't have to be something that happened yesterday. It could be something that happened years ago. So it becomes um, it becomes unsafe when, for example, I might come to you, Mariana. let's say I'm your boss um, and I demand something of you or I ask something of you thinking, well, this is your job, right? So there may be some stuff going on or I, I have no idea because I also don't create a, a place for you to volunteer to tell me. Um, and then I ask you to kind of work on the weekend or something, but maybe in your last job, your previous boss also had these really terrible expectations for you to work on the weekend, not because, you know, they. Read, and this is the problem, they're nice people, right? It's never like a, I'm a tyrant, I'm a slave master, and you better work on the weekend or you're fired. It becomes couched in these terms that sound like they have such good intentions, like, oh, you know, I really hate to do this, Marianne, but you know, this client has come by and they're, this emergency thing has come up. And even though we gave them all this notice, uh, they still give this last minute demand and it's just a team effort. You don't want to let the team down, do you, Marianne? You don't want to, it's not for me, right? It's it's also, it's for all, we're all going to be here. So as if it's better that everybody has to work on the weekend. So how how do you fight against these things? It's almost, it's a, it's a tool of shame, really, a tool of shame and guilt. And I yeah. don't think that our workplaces recognize how much performance is a, is a shame weapon. Right, when you look at your rating, you're rated on a scale. And if you don't perform, uh, maybe your boss doesn't berate you, but sometimes just the look on their face is enough to send you down a shame spiral and be like, I I suck. I'm not good enough. Um, And so a lot of these things can just be uh, learned behaviors or just the mindset, the attitudes that we portray, whether consciously or unconsciously, that do not create safety, do not create comfort and acceptance, because frankly, that's not what work is about. That's not what work is about. Work is about performance. Work is about delivery. Is not about grace and forgiveness and unconditional acceptance of however you perform, or giving you reasons to say, well, because I had this experience with this background, I need a little bit more allowance. I can't just perform to the same level as somebody else, and then that's okay.
0: Hi, listeners. Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia, and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all FlourishDX Academy courses included within the FlourishDX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish GX for free at www.flourishgx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishgx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode.
1: Yeah. And I think unconditional acceptance of performance at any um, level would be very bad for business, but the example that you gave of using shame um, intentionally or unintentionally is what um, psychologically safe leaders would not do. A psychologically safe leader would recognize that everybody has things that they're going through or have gone through and you have no idea. So that's sort of the first thing. The next thing is, your job isn't to diagnose, treat, or counsel, but your job is to support someone to be really successful at work. Rosie, I burned out in um, 2004, and it was not a great experience. When and And I take a lot of responsibility for doing that because of my own personality of being driven and wanting to do really good work. But today, as a boss myself, I would not allow somebody to work past the eight hours or whatever they're paid for, because I know that ultimately their performance will be better if they're not overwhelmed and stressed out. And I won't ask things of employees that I know could have um, a negative impact on their well-being. and creating a psychologically safe place means that if i asked you to help out on the weekend you would feel safe enough to say no not this weekend i can't do it i've got other and you would know that it would be acceptable so it, it, that's what psychologically psychological safety is rather than me understanding the psychology of my employees it's me protecting them from harm. Hmm. And that that's the difference, um, I think, between the two. Yeah.
2: That's a very interesting description. Um, you know, and to be totally honest, Marianne, I have not thought very hard about what a definition uh, of psychological safety really is. Um, so, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from in that. I think when I on it from an equity perspective from putting on an equity lens um i would say that i would say that a employer cannot create a feeling of safety for the, the employee without understanding and recognizing their their unique experiences their the unique things that they that impacts their how they feel uh, and and their psychology their their how their brain is working So,
1: you think, um, you know, this guy that's uh, got a machine shop and he's got, you know, 10 people working for him um, should be able to understand how other people's brains work?
2: I think that if they care about having people feel that their uniqueness is welcome and accepted, right? Doesn't have to be conformed to anything. Then they have to allow for how their different, the employees' different selves show up. And that incorporates like their different, the way, uh, not, not necessarily about understanding how their brain works, but understanding that what presents, like how they speak, what comes out, and the way they react to things is very much informed on how their past experiences is impacted then their cognitive behavior.
1: Right. I
2: absolutely
1: agree with you that we need to accept people for who they are. And even to the point, Rosie, where if somebody is behaving in a way that I might deem to be inappropriate or um, challenging, to wonder, as you might say, what it was they're going through or what they've been through, rather than wondering why they're behaving that way right now, but thinking, Mm -hmm. yeah, that there's something going on. So how do we balance that out? Because What we've got is we've got um, the people who might be called bleeding hearts. They really want to help. They really want to do the right thing. And sometimes they smother or become enmeshed or inappropriate. And then you get the people like, that's your issue. I don't care. What's the balance?
2: Well, I. For the people who don't think they have any responsibility for, or maybe to put it a, a little bit more fairly, they don't want to get involved. They don't want to change. Right? They don't well, want to. They may
1: not be able to deal with their own emotions, and that's the thing: is if they've never learned to deal with their own emotions, mm-hmm. then dealing with somebody else's can be overwhelming.
2: Hundred percent. And actually, you uh, we're aligned on this because you you picked up exactly what I was going to say is. It starts with working on yourself, like helping yeah. others starts with working on yourself. So for the people who don't want to help others, um, I'm not, I don't work with them because they don't want to work with me to be honest. And it, that's not a judgment. That's just a reality. It's like, okay, you, you do you, I'll do me, but I don't feel the need to try to convert anybody Yeah, to, I hear you. Yeah. You can't make anyone believe in justice and equity, right? They believe in it or they don't. Yeah. For the people who do believe in it and want to do something about it, this is, yeah, this is one of those not obvious areas where helping others starts with helping yourself and working on what are those things that you don't even recognize. Uh, for example, I one of the things I talk about a lot is self-sabotaging behavior or uh, saboteurs uh, in a shorter form. And especially in a workplace, we talk a lot about strengths. So there's whole programs and coaching that is emphasizing start from your strengths. And when you work from your strengths, then rather than focusing too much on your weaknesses, because that can be detrimental as well, then that's how you will improve. And Then we talk about balance, right? Because yes, strengths are good and we should be aware and work from our strengths. So strengths are the way we're innately gifted That is part of diversity, right? Because we all have hopefully different strengths, which can be complementary to each other. But I think what uh, people may not realize is that strengths taken too far becomes self-sabotaging behavior, right? So for me, for example, one of my strengths is uh, really heavy attention to detail high attention to detail. So that made me a great auditor when I was studying for my CPA because I could pick up on the smallest thing that was out of place, like things that nobody else would notice. Um, And I had this huge drive and need to like just deliver the best quality anything. I was very client-centered, customer-centered. Taken too far, um, that's actually where unintentional shame happened, right? So something you said earlier too about uh, a a good boss would never shame anybody else. And I agree. But I also think very good bosses don't realize when they're shaming someone else, right? So I didn't realize uh, that I was shaming people just by a look on my face or or something I might say to like, oh, really? Really, Marianne? Is, Is that what you think? Is that what you think the answer is kind of thing, right? And my intention was just, but we need to do a good job. We need to produce the highest quality deliverable and report. And I'm, I'm trying to help you, Marianne. I'm teaching you to be like me by showing you that number that you missed or that period, that I that you didn't dot. Like, this is just really, this is how I learned uh, because this is, of course, passed down right from my bosses and their bosses. It's how I learned. So this is how you're going to learn. It's all for the greater good. Meanwhile, my employees were calling me militant and wanting to please me I guess because they, you know, I, I, hopefully I wasn't a terrible person, but also feeling burnt out, right? Completely stressed and on uh, on eggshells around me because they never knew they, they already knew they messed up something, but they wouldn't find it. Uh, only I would find it, and so it was always waiting for me to tell them what they did wrong. So that is high. That's unsafe. I would say that's psychologically unpleasant at best and unsafe environment to work in. But and it's also how
1: wonderful yep. that you. You know, it's something that you said, Rosie, that self-awareness to me is job one of leaders. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to or can't be self-aware, then you shouldn't be in it. But even if we strive to be self-aware, like you say, you would not have ever intended Mm -hmm. to pressure or shame people. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a leader, it happened, right?
2: That's right. Yeah. And that's also where, like, awareness is step one, really. Yeah. Uh, I became aware because sometimes, you know, harshly and sometimes just through my own introspection. But that doesn't mean I was able to just change, right? It, you, awareness can sometimes bring people to a place of, oh, I know that's not so good. But even if I wanted to change it, and now maybe I do want to change it, I don't know how, right? Yeah. I, I don't know how to even. And the workplace, uh, not just the workplace, the economy, the entire way our business is structured does not help because of these demands, right? Like Like you said earlier. It's not good for business the way it's structured today, for people's performance at any level to be unconditionally accepted, because the business objective continues to be profit at any cost, A continual year after year, you know, revenue increase, performance increase, and so in some ways, and I know this is uh, idealistic, the entire attitude and mindset of business overall has to change because it's that production-driven belief that creates. Scarcity, urgency, and no ability even to pause and and say, well, now I want to work on myself, but that requires not having this pressure to perform.
1: Yeah. And that again, the irony is that if two people are doing the exact same work and one has that pressure to perform, that scarcity that if I don't do this, I'm going to get fired or something else is going to happen. And the other person is told, you know, just do your best. How can I help you? Let's prioritize. The person that doesn't have the pressure is actually going to have better performance, better productivity over time. And uh, the research backs that up. So it's kind of old school, I guess, to think that if we keep people under our thumbs, they'll keep their nose to the grindstone.
2: Well, you hit on a key word there, which is they will perform better over time. Yeah. and so businesses though are very short-term thinking. And I, I realize this too, the more I learn from Indigenous communities and the Indigenous worldview, which does a timeline of seven generations, right? So they are thinking far, talk about sustainability, they are thinking far ahead of what is the impact to our grandchildren, the grandchildren's grandchildren. But if we only care in a business about this quarter or this year's metrics or maybe the next year's metrics, then no, we we don't care about how uh, the long-term performance will be, even though it is actually hurting the business because of turnover, because of sick leave and burnout, those things are also short-term impacts of not changing the way we work. Uh, but there's not really that much incentive to do it because the thing is, it does work, right? these It's scary to think, um, but I've been doing some research on also ways of work, well, slavery, during times of slavery, pre-emancipation in the US, uh, they're not that different from how we work today. And I know that's going to raise some people's hackles, but here's a specific example that I think a lot of people can relate to. Uh, have you ever heard the the joke, which is based in truth of, if you do a good job, you just get punished because they just give you more work to do because they yeah. think that you're so great. No good right? deeds go unpunished. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I've seen this many times and I've experienced, oh, the more trustworthy, the better performer you are, the more they lay on you to do um, and the better reform you are, that tends to be that you'll you'll accept it because you want to keep advancing, you want to do well, right? Um, so these are all good intentions again. That's exactly what happened in slavery too, where uh, they they measured slaves' cotton picking output, as one example. And it was, it was always, uh, everyone was measured against the slave who could pick the most cotton. And it was this game the slaves had to play where if you didn't pick enough cotton, you'd get beets and all this violent stuff would happen. But if you picked too outstanding of an amount of cotton, then suddenly the cotton quota would go up, right? And then you had to like do that again, a probably miraculous feat that you already just did repeatedly over and over and over. Yeah. And when I read that in the research, I was like, that's exactly what happens to people today. We just don't see it in the same light because it has been so normalized and because we pay people. We don't think we're treating people, this- well, we're, not. we're not physically whipping people, but we're psychologically whipping people.
1: I think that there was, um, in the very recent past, that was okay, not whipping people, I don't mean that, but (laughs) it was okay to let your ambitious star performers work till they burn out, because there'd be more available. Mm -hmm. And so you just replace them with somebody else who wants to work at this ridiculous speed and effort two things. One is that we've run out of this big talent pool, um, especially recently. So you can't just replace people on a whim. But the other thing is that for people, you know, this whole term quiet quitting, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just saying people want to do their job, they don't want their work to be their entire lives. And when I look at the people in the workplace who are solid, dependable, they're not flashy, they're not the star performers, they're often the foundation of that workplace. And other people come and go and they all they want is the next thing and they want to advance and that's okay. But if you don't have those people who are just going to come in, maybe from nine to five, do a decent job and go home, um,
2: we can be at risk. 100%. Um, yeah, to me, the, the quiet, uh, I don't really like the term quiet quitting. I no. get where it comes from, <laughs> but really it's an uprising, right? It's to me, it's the, um, the antithesis of the great resignation. Because, and, and notice how these things get labeled, right? Exactly as you, I know you're just quoting what other people are saying. Yeah. But the fact that people don't want to work ridiculous hours anymore becomes called quiet quitting. Yeah. That's the power of business and money to yeah. use media and to use their platforms to uh, to label in a negative way, employees who are asking for health. frankly, like this, yeah. this is just a healthier way Have of work-life working. balance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I agree. Um, believe it or not, Rosie, we're running out of time. <laughs> I want to ask you um, a question and then I'll let you share whatever else you want to share. But my question is, if you were talking um, to somebody, especially somebody in an equity deserving group, and you were describing what it would feel like for them to be in a psychologically healthy and safe workplace, how would you describe it?
2: I'm pausing because it's a very good question. And of course, there's too many things to to name. What's coming first of mind for me right now is to actually feel heard. And when I say feeling heard, it means that uh, there will be disagreement. But what I typically find coming from an equity, like for a person coming from an equity-seeking group, they don't have the power to force people to listen to them. And so if they're speaking to, say, their boss or whoever is coming from the power holding group, then those individuals can easily smile and nod and say that they heard, and even, like, listen, um, but not agree, and then they, they win the argument, right? Like, there's, there's no discussion, there's no dialogue, because they have the power to say, well, yeah, agree to disagree, or yeah, yes, I get it, but this is the way it is. I have personally experienced recently, not even as an employee, but as a, a consultant a facilitator. Um, so I'm seeing this happen and play out right now in real life. Where, uh, in my example, or in the case I'm thinking of, is women, and the organization recognized that the survey results, from, you know, those people surveys, all the women's results answered a lot less favorably than the men's results, but nobody knew why. And as I'm trying to help coordinate. Having some discussions and some focus groups so we could figure this stuff out. I was seeing where some of the resistance from the very top, again, no bad intentions, but just the uh, something as simple as, well, oh, I think that we should have only you know, six people in a group. And then the message from the top was, oh, no, no, we need to have as many women as possible coming in. And, and, and it was all about the organization's goals. Again, there is, this is what happens when you have an equity power imbalance. The people in power are centering themselves. And a simple shift, a simple shift, but hard to do, would be to shift that centering to the people who don't have it, right? So for me, it's not about quantity. Quantity is also a a business metric measure. It's about quality, and in the case of quality, uh, you actually just start thinking the opposite when it's about equity. So it's not about it's not about getting as many women as possible. It's about getting the women who want to speak and who have something to say, and who want to be heard. And that's not going to be all the women in the organization. So I don't care if it's three women or 20 women. What I care about is that the women who really want to be there get to be there. So when you shift that centering, then it's also about, well, how did you communicate? In this case of this organization, they buried it in some newsletter, along with a bunch of other HR-related communications. So no kidding, people weren't signing up because they didn't even see it and then the response of oh we got to hurry up and fill these spots so a lot of pressuring messages came down where some women actually felt like they were told to attend and they didn't particularly care to be there but they had to because all everybody at the top was under pressure to fill these spots right so it's this what to me this is a very real life example of when we are seeking to even seeking to understand an equity seeking group but from an organizational benefit perspective, like, well, we need to meet our uh, our diversity and inclusion goals. So this is one of the things we're going to do. And we need to have a certain number of women and blah, blah, blah. It's all about the organization. It starts with actually listening. And in my case, if I'm telling you, we should have a smaller number of people so we have a more meaningful discussion. Are you really listening to me and hearing me? Or are you still just so focused on your own agenda that you can't hear what people are telling you? So that's what I mean by really letting people be heard. And, and let yourself be wrong for the people in power are used to always being right. Let yourself be wrong.
1: That's an ego thing. It sounded like they were more about the optics than they were about um, actually getting meaningful uh, input from people who are impacted. And yeah, it's a, con- a constant. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, Rosie, any last bits of advice or wisdom that you'd like to share?
2: I guess the main thing I really, I, I do really want people to feel encouraged. I know I've uh, shared a lot of things about way things, way things are not working, um, but I genuinely see that if people want healing, there's healing. And I say healing, not just from like a medical uh, doctor perspective, but that what the inequity and the discrimination that exists is, is a form of sickness. Right, it is creating. It also creates physical unhealth and mental unhealth in all all people, regardless of race and gender. And so, to begin healing, we have to want to heal, but we also have to recognize that there's a sickness and what the sickness is. So the sickness goes beyond just is am I a racist or am I not a racist? Uh, that's actually not that's not a very helpful way to frame the discussion because it's not about trying to finger point to say you are or you are not racist. So understanding, I think, how, how people feel and putting aside ego, like putting aside, am I to blame or am I not to blame or what did I do wrong? But just give you a chance to understand what's the impact on people, regardless of where it's coming from. What is the impact? And then what's the impact of hearing this on yourself if you're in the, the position of power and position of privilege? And we all need healing from that because each of us coming with our, whatever, like the the baggage, baggage isn't a good word, just our histories, right? Our family histories, our life experiences, that causes us to react and respond in a certain way. And if you're not feeling good about it, then there's healing for you too. Uh, But it takes takes, um, recognition, it takes some time, and it takes organizations as well to make time and make space for every person to be able to do that work. And to receive the healing that everyone needs.
1: That's great. And Rosie, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you about your coaching or your consulting services, how do they reach you?
2: The best way is probably through LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn, and they can should be easy to search me as Rosie Young, with Young spelled Y-E-U-N-G. And I have more information about what I do on my website, which is Changing Lenses. So Changing Lenses, L-E-N-S-E-S dot C-A.
1: Great. Thank
2: you so much. And I'd like to
1: encourage the people that are listening to the podcast to subscribe so you can hear the future ones as well. And uh, Rosie, it was a pleasure to have you here today.
2: Thank you, Marianne. It's a pleasure for me as well. I appreciate you having me. Thanks you've been listening to the psych health and safety canada podcast to stay up
0: to date with the best content on workplace mental health in north america subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the flourish dx community at www.flourishdx.com